It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to Grillin' JR with the voice of wrestling, the Hall of Famer himself, good old Jim Ross. Jim, how are you, man? Conrad, I've had one hell of a week. I'm blessed. It's been so uh, so productive, and I've met a lot of good people in Charleston. Had a good time. Uh, travel was okay, unlike last week when it was the drizzling she is it's. Uh, and... Uh, the travel, it, folks. If you don't travel, count your blessings. I was in Amer- I was in DFW last uh, Thursday. These Thursdays are the kiss of death. Four Thursdays in a row now that I've been horribly late getting home. So here's what happened last week. I get to the airport at one o'clock, right from uh, Pittsburgh. Good shape. Plenty of time to make my connection. Going to be home about three something. Beautiful. So I get there, and the, there's cloudy weather. There's, there's rain, starting to rain in the outskirts of the of the airport. So some flights are delayed. Then all of a sudden, you look, I'll go to the Admiral's Club. Not a place to hide for me. Not a bad place, I should say. And uh, I see all these little red things. And okay, cancellation, postpone, delay, delay, whatever. So I go to the, the woman, and I said, uh, the, at the Admiral's Club, I said, well, okay, honestly, what's the chance we're actually going to go somewhere today? When, am I going to be able to get home? Oh, yeah, 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 we'll get home. You'll get home. You'll be fine. So I wait like a mark. I use that term. I'm a travel mark, I guess. And I uh, sat in the Admiral's Club, even even not drinking for a while. I didn't, I didn't have any cocktails in the Admiral's Club, and, you know, they're fair priced. So I I go back, talk to him again. Oh, no, no, you're... So they, they, well, your fourth, your flight has been uh, post, your flight has been postponed, but we got you back uh, booked on another flight. Long story short, about seven o'clock, seven p.m., I realize I'm getting worked by the by the airline people. They don't want to lose that one that fare for that leg on that 29 minute flight from Dallas to Oklahoma City. So I said, well, I'm going to. I'm going to call uh, AEW and have them give, give me a car service and take me home. 
And the air, the uh, American didn't really, they weren't happy to hear that. It's probably a $300 ticket. Are you kidding me? So I called, uh, AEW and on good old Tony Khan's dime, they sent a driver and an Escalade and, and, uh, he picked me up at the airport and I drove, we drove my ass home. I got home at 10 30. I left, uh, uh, Pittsburgh at 8 AM central time, even though I know they're Eastern at 8 AM my clock. I got home at 10 30 my time and I'm sitting there in my chair going over my mail, all the honeydew stuff you do when you're by yourself going through the shit. And I get, I, st- I keep getting these notifications on my cell phone from American about my flight being delayed. I finally fell asleep about midnight and I don't know if that flight left or it didn't, but uh, I was, I was at home before it boarded long before it boarded. So I made the right move there. So I know it didn't leave until after midnight. It's just, you, you, it's just hard. And that's why I'd like to fly back to Dallas for that one reason. I can get a car service and be home in under three hours. If I have to, I don't want to do it, but if I have to, but it's just, a, it was troubling. The travel was troubling. And, uh, then I, I run into this, but I got home safe and sound. So poor me, you know, no big deal. I got here. Then I get the shit storm of this, you know, I, the Seth Rollins, uh, uh, thing that we talked about last week, you know, boy, a lot of people agreed. A lot of people didn't dis- a lot of people disagreed. And then after it set in about a day, uh, these geniuses that follow me on some, some of the geniuses that follow me on Twitter and most of the 1.7 million followers I have are seemingly to me, logically sound of mind. Uh, they are decent to talk to, but then there's that small group that's just pet coon effing goofy. I get, I, I get the, uh, feminists to jump on my shit because I uh, use Becky as a quote unquote pawn. When I made this flippant remark, looking for humor and a little entertainment content that maybe someday he'll be as over as his girlfriend. Well, was that a wise ass remark by me? Uh, yeah, it sure was. Did it have any major validity? Probably not looking for a little humor here in our podcast. So we kind of do that. Man, I got, man, I got, I got gut and quarter Conrad. I don't understand what people's situations are. I don't, I don't, why are, why are we so negative about everything? Is it because of fake news or the internet or what, what can we blame it on Conrad? What can we blame our overt negativity on in today's society? Do you know? Well, I mean, I think it's just people want to uh, have their voice heard and they're looking for opportunities online. And, you know, you always make the, uh, the correlation that it's, it's odd that you got all these sort of boo birds on social, but then in real life, nobody comes over and says anything negative at all. And not because you're Billy badass, just, that's no. just not the nature of, 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 you know, the world we live in now. So it's unfortunate. You know, I, I understood when you said it, that you were clearly just looking for a little tongue in cheek humor. And for whatever reason, not everybody was very receptive to that. And, and then I got, I got, uh, uh, put my, my nuts on advice. Uh, over, uh, making, we made a t-shirt. How dare you? How dare you make a t-shirt? You know, it's not fair. It's not right for Seth and Becky. Okay. I'll give them a wedding gift. All right. Chill out. Uh, you know, it's ironic that I have a great rapport with Becky Lynch and I have great respect for her and I have great respect for Seth Rollins. My point was folks, here's the deal. For those of us, and I put myself in the same kettle of fish, I got no business 
getting pissed off about uh, somebody calling my company AEW, a minor league. Let them go. They, let them say what the hell they want and ignore them. That's what I should be doing. But I care enough about the business when I see a star who's a very talented star who is in a position of leadership and influence within the annals of sports entertainment in today's market, say things like that. We all that have any influence on the wrestling fans, any influence on our business should be spreading good words and promoting our overall wrestling business. That'd be like me going and saying, yeah, how about that studio show those guys are doing, that NWA deal? It ain't really the NWA. Sam Mustard's been dead for 50 years or whatever. Well, that'd be bullshit. I hope that the NWA and, 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 and Billy Corgan and all his group do phenomenal. Why wouldn't I even court Bauer, the miniature, uh, Vince McMahon of the East. I hope he does well with MLW. He's got some new good talents. It gives people in our, my work in, in our world, Conrad, a job. It provides income for families. And so you're not gonna hear me talking negative about, uh, I may have some fun tongue and cheek stuff, but to go on a tirade and go crazy about another wrestling company and hope that they fail or call them a, uh, a less than, uh, advantageous or positive name ain't going to happen. So, uh, for those of you that I offended with my opinion, I just believe, I apologize. I just believe that we have to, as a wrestling community and that, and, and if you're listening to my show, I guarantee you're not listening to the show for financial advice or medical advice or any of the other advices that people give on podcasts. You're looking, listening to us for some entertainment nation, some, uh, educated opinion, and that's it not to change the world. So we're going to have more, we're going to continue to have fun here. And when I get pissed off, I'm going to share that. And I'm, I may get pissed off today because we're talking about a card that that's pissed offable and, and, uh, <laughs> that's and, a great uh, word. I like it, you just freestyle that piss offable. I like it. Yeah, piss offable and uh, Halloween havoc 89. I watched the show again for the first time since 1989 and, uh, cringed at my own work part-time, you know, uh, I, I was, uh, I don't know if I was smoking then since I started smoking back way back in the day, my voice got a little deeper and, uh, and of course the crown royal helps a little bit deep in the voice. I, I was, I was irritated with my own voice. <laughs> I, but here's what I loved. I love working with Bob Cottle. I said it so many times how much I love Bob Cottle as a man. He's the finest human, finest man that I ever worked with. You see the greatest broadcaster That's subjective <laughs> to me. He was, he never failed. He so reliable. If even Bob was a baseball player, you could bet your ass. He's going to get on base every time. So I love that part of it. And I, and I look back and both of us have the same basic opinion. I think of the show, but my opinion, Conrad, is that if you look at the lineup of talents that were booked, it's like an all-star game. Not really. Uh, well, you know, Flair, Terry, Funk, Muda, Sting in the main event, Gary Hart, Ole Anderson, both at ringside. That's not a bad grouping of people, accomplished people, talented people. And that's not all, you know, we, but we have some things we're trying to get over with the, the rock and hard spot. There was what we've tried to do to, uh, be more WWF like when nobody in our team on our team in our book, on our booking committee wanted to do that. We want to create, you know, uh, what we all believe philosophically was the right way to go. And we had the people on the booking committee to do that. You know, uh, Kevin Sullivan and Cornette, Jim Cornette, uh, who doesn't like AEW, by the way, if you notice, 
But you think, Cornette and I have been friends for 30 years. Sometimes I just shake my head and giggle, chuckle. I guess fat guys chuckle. Conrad, we, we, we chuckle, right? Oh, sure. Absolutely. Like, we're we're like, jolly like Santa. We are jolly bastards. So, uh, that's, I'm a jolly bastard. I don't mind that. Call me a jolly bastard. Next time you see me in the airport, I'll be happy to hug you. Uh, so I'm just, uh, I, I, we, but we were forced by Jim Hurd because he didn't know whichever way, another way to go. And people have this innate, uh, desire to change things that aren't broken. It's ego. It's un, the fear. It's the actual fear of the unknown. So we just, uh, we shit to bed on many occasions on uh, getting ready for the show with, with all the stuff. But, uh, I'm, uh, I'm glad every experience I've had, I wouldn't trade for the world. I wish the show would have been better, but there are some elements of the show that I thought was kind of cool. Uh, but the getting there was a giant, it's like traveling in a car on a family vacation and, and having to stop and pee every pee every 30 miles. It becomes insanity to start from home and try to get to the, where your, your destination is, was, is a shits, no pun intended. And, uh, that's exactly what we had there. That thing, it was a hard cause none of us felt felt that show. None of us felt this is what we're going to do. This is going to be cool. It wasn't like the bash. It wasn't like the Starcade. It was a gimmick show to emulate WWF and their cartoon approach at that time uh, with some of their characters. And we failed at it. Well, let's talk about it because this is the very first Halloween havoc and both Tony Schiavone and Eric Bischoff have agreed that this would become the marquee show. Of course, in the days of Jim Crockett promotions, it was all about Starcade. That was the granddaddy of them all, but the marquee WCW event was going to wind up being Halloween havoc. This of course is a far cry from that. This is the very first one back in 1989. It went down on October 28th. Uh, so just a couple of days ago was the 30 year anniversary in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. You've got 7,300 paying fans. That's a total of $104,234 at the gate and a 1.77 pay-per-view buy rate. So it is financially successful and this Philadelphia crowd, I mean, they are some of the most rabid rowdy fans of all. They love their wrestling They're smart fans. And man, that's never more apparent than in a handful of these matches where they're not just booing the bad guys and cheering the good guys. Sometimes they just, uh, appreciate wrestling talent. Let's talk about the, the actual name Halloween havoc though. Uh, you sort of insinuated that maybe this was Jim Hurd trying to emulate what he had seen with the WWF and their more cartoonish presentation, but I did like the name Halloween havoc, uh, in this era, for whatever reason, dusty Rhodes was create was credited with creating uh, a lot of the names, whether it was Buckhouse Stampede or the Great American Bash or Starcade, was Halloween Havoc a Dusty name, or was that a Jim Hurd name, as best you remember? I don't know. I don't know where Dusty's status was at that point in time, Conrad. I, I know uh, I consulted with Dave Meltzer uh, this morning, early, early for him, and uh, he recalls that it was booked by Cornette and, and Sullivan, which doesn't mean they're they're getting the the big check mark bad the bad mark for for creating something that wasn't good i mean we all had a hand in it there are a lot of cooks in that kitchen they just kind of were the were the the the, the they were the, the we were some of us are sous chefs and some were cooking the entrees and that's what they were doing that time well to be, and, uh, to be clear been, I, I know for sure dusty was in the wwf i guess what i was freestyling is was this a dusty leftover you know like i don't i don't know i don't think so i don't think so at all i think it was a new idea 
after Dusty had left, new idea, had nothing to do with Dusty, yay, nay, or indifferent. Uh, and when we were backed into a creative corner that this is what they wanted, uh, you know, the, and we had to have a hook and that the, the, uh, the cage was the hook. Uh, and the guys in the cage was obviously significant, you know, as always, uh, we, at least we had a finish, uh, it might not have been a good one, but it was a DQ in that structure. But nonetheless, I digress. Uh, I think, like I said, I think Cornette and Sullivan were the main cooks and look, I've not worked around two guys smarter, more strategic with a better feel for the wrestling business than Kevin Sullivan and Jim Cornette. 1989, they, they, they were, as they are now, two very bright guys, as far as the wrestling business is concerned, it was a bad concept. And then, and then they wanted all this, this, the cage thing was a, such a gimmick and it's not what we do and what we did. And, uh, it was just not a good fit, but we were, we were a corporate pawn and, uh, we did what we were told to do. And that's kind of how it worked out. Well, this is back in the days when you guys don't have a pay-per-view every single month, just a handful every year. Starcade, of course, is going to be the next big one. I mean, if you're looking at just a calendar and trying to decide where you can slot in another one, October does seem to make sense. Let's talk a little bit about the process of starting a new pay-per-view. What goes on behind the scenes inside of a company with regard to the way you know, TV changes and now you've got to get some promos done obviously booking a venue. Some of that stuff is sort of elementary, but when you're launching in the late eighties, now a new pay-per-view venture, this has to feel like something that is going to be all hands on deck because you want to make sure these new creations are successful. You don't want another bunkhouse stampede situation that you had a year prior. Mm-hmm. You're right about that. Uh, didn't have any issue with it being placed in October. I thought that was going to. Uh, good positioning, uh, honestly, uh, I, I think that, uh, you give a lot of people when you start up, when you have a brand new concept, you give a lot of people the, uh, opportunity to get involved in areas of expertise that they are not e- expert in, if that makes any sense. It gets, it got like Turner home entertainment. They had a lot of fanboys in that Turner Home Entertainment at that time, and they they were they had a new toy. They owned the team, so they could, they thought they could call all the plays, and they could. But we're gonna lose our ass. We're gonna lose the games, and and uh, and and we weren't near. We were under so underachieving in that era with the talent that we had. It was uh, it was terrible. If we had just been able to book the talents, in other words, put all the players in a for, in an offense that we could score with. This thing would have been a whole lot different story as, as history has been told over the years, but that did not happen. And, uh, and, and so you got to go through all that stuff with the, the, the outer line input and color schemes, the theme, the music, the promos producing promos. I mean, when we were there, uh, there was a lady there named Sharon Sadello that spent massive monies on promos. I mean, well, I heard a number one time and I thought somebody, oh, you're bullshitting me. We can't be that stupid. Well, we're making movies. No, hell, we ain't making movies. We're doing pro wrestling. Don't bullshit yourself. What, can, can we not just be comfortable that we're in the goddamn pro wrestling business and we're not making movies? Horse shit making movies, my fat Oklahoma dimpled ass. We are 
doing pro wrestling, episodic reality-based television. And, uh, that that's where we should have been. And we, we got taken out of that, that area era, but you get the, we, all that stuff goes into play pro. Like I said, the promos, the color schemes, the whole nine yards. Uh, and then of course the key element for me, I think most fans would agree is a card. It doesn't matter all the sizzle. If the steak ain't worth a shit, I don't care about eating the green beans. I'll just not eat this T-bone right now. I'll just, I'll just have my couscous. Can you imagine Jr. eating couscous? No. What the hell? Are we, what are we thinking here? So anyway, uh, that's kind of how I look at it, Conrad. We had a lot of cooks in the kitchen. We had a booking committee that had a lot of different opinions, but we, but the guys in the cook in the booking committee actually knew the business. They actually knew had product knowledge. And when you start something brand new like that, sometimes you get into a situation where guys that don't have product knowledge. Uh, are, are challenged. So I say, I said the same thing to my buddies at AEW that we're having a great time doing those one offs, you know, fight for the fallen and the pay-per-view here and a pay-per-view there, maybe the world changes when you go when you're leaving the house every single week, how many people do you believe that have left the house every single week to go to work and not, not probably less than you think. So that's another adjustment that you got to make. Uh, when you start a brand new company, you got to adjust to the travel, adjust to this and that. So, uh, our, we didn't adjust well in the early goings there. It was like when Crockett went belly up and Turner bought him out. Some of the guys on the inside who were fans, you see the TV tapings and things, but now they had a chance to get in the, get in the locker room. They had a chance to be in the, in the team meetings. And that was probably not the best idea that we could have blessed at that time. Let's keep it moving here. Uh, I'm sure there's plenty to talk about with Sharon Sadello, uh, but what I would rather talk about is Bruno San Martino. He's going to come in and be the referee in the main event of Halloween Havoc. And this is, um, this is a coup, man. This is, this is the era where Bruno San Martino is on, uh, I don't know, a bit of a circuit bashing Vince McMahon and the WWF, whether it's Donahue or any of the other daytime or nighttime talk shows that will have him, uh, the WWF is going to have some controversy here or there. And anytime those scandals pop up, it seems like Bruno was always there, uh, to just heap on and pile on. And now you're in the Northeast where he was obviously a, a, a very big drawing card for decades. And now for the first time in a long time, you see Bruno involved with wrestling and, and there's no WWF attached. What are your memories of, of how this came to be? whose idea was it, how the deal was structured, just any sort of Bruno details you can recall here. Just Capital is a nonprofit that tracks which companies are a force for good. Companies like Bank of America, which just earned the Just Capital seal. Bank of America is ranked number one for ongoing commitment to their workers with initiatives like Sharing Success, which awarded 97% of their teammates additional compensation, nearly all in stock. This is the program's seventh consecutive year, awarding more than $4.8 billion in total. Visit JustCapital.com to learn how a just business is a better business. Furnished by Just Capital. What companies would you want to work for? Just Capital is a nonprofit that tracks which companies are a force for good. Companies like Bank of America, which just earned the prestigious Just Capital 2024 seal. Bank of America is ranked number one in the banking industry and number one for their ongoing commitment to workers, offering best-in-class benefits, including a minimum wage of $25 an hour by 2025. Visit JustCapital.com to learn how a just business is a better business. Furnished by Just Capital. 
Well, first of all, uh, the reason that the media went to Bruno uh, for these WWE uh, uh, calamities was because, A, uh, in the major market, New York City, he had amazing name identity. Uh, there was never, there was not a better, there was not a more recognized name within the annals of a certain demographic of the WWF and, and a newer than Bruno. Uh, and he was always a, uh, as he was in real life, he was honest to a fault sometimes. Uh, so it's, it'd be like bringing, having a baseball scandal and bringing in uh, Babe Ruth to talk about the baseball scandal. He was an expert. He, he, he played the game. He was there. He, he got a great feel for it. And Bruno's lifestyle, the way he lived his life was diametrically opposed to the way the WWF was being managed at that point in time. So I think it was a coup. And I think Jim Hurd had a lot to do with getting it done. Uh, I'm sure there was somebody uh, go between somewhere along the way. It wasn't me. I didn't, I never met Bruno that, until that point in time. Uh, but I loved him, uh, when I did meet him. Cause he was such a nice man. He's, he, he's, uh, I, and I miss him still. He said he was, I wish he was around because he would have been a, he would have been a great guy to call around and say, Hey Bruno, I got a, this damn internet's killing me. And what do you think? I, I should shut my head, shut up and move on or whatever. Sometimes you need a guy like that in your life to be your, your guiding light. And, and, and of course the cowboy, I talked to call him, he just wants to go fight everybody. So <laughs> that's not my deal. Uh, so I, Bruno was just. He's, he was, he had name identity. He was a superstar. He had not had any association with WWF, uh, in years and years, uh, arguably the biggest star they ever had, especially on the East coast. And I'm not, I'm not shitting on Hogan or, or Austin or anybody, but at that time, Bruno was, he was a God. He still is a wrestling God. Uh, and you know, I, I had to think, I thought about him a lot last week when we were in Pittsburgh. So that was the deal. He was, he had, he's, he was as they, uh, the old timers say, Conrad, Bruno was box office and we got a lot of publicity and a lot of chatter, uh, with Bruno being on the card as the referee and wearing a referee shirt. And he looked like a referee. He didn't have the sleeves cut out. He didn't wear a gimmick, all gimmicky, gimmicked up to where it's just about them, that character and not about the position that you represent as an official, but you're, uh, you know, you're, you're in a position to where, uh, you, you are fit, you fit into your role. And he had no problem doing that. So his ego was in, intact. Was Bruno the best referee? I'll tell you something, Conrad. I think one of the worst gimmicks in all of pro wrestling, booking-wise, is to have a, uh, a celebrity referee that don't know come here from Sikkim about being official. That would include uh, the boxers of the world. We had Joe Lewis. You know, all those guys. Marciano was a referee. And look, it's great to get a payday. The boys got to work, but they don't do a great job in the ring because they don't know how. Kaninsky was a wrestler. Gene Kaninsky, a great wrestler, NWA champion. He, he called one of the Flair, I think one of the Flair uh, Hardy matches. Kind of sucked. Wrong place, wrong. They had the best referee in the world, Tommy Young. But Tommy should, I just don't think it's, I think it's a bad marriage. So Bruno's put it to a tough role. He did the best he could with it, and we got a lot of mileage out of it. And that one time he did something physical, the, the damn crowd went ape shit big time. Let's talk a little bit about the other idea that was presented. Apparently Jim Hurd asked Bruno to come in as a color commentator, but Bruno declined the offer because he didn't want to travel. And that's, that's in your wheelhouse, man. Commentary. Did you ever hear that Bruno was offered the opportunity to do commentary? 
Sure. Yeah. Her talking to me about it. You know, I'm, hey, I'm talking to Bruno. So he wants to do some TV with us. But then I was just doing some TV. So I thought maybe they were working a deal out where Bruno would come in and just do the pay-per-views. Third man in the booth type deal. Uh, but, you know, they want him on a weekly basis. And, you know, he wasn't, as, as you just reiterated, he wasn't prepared to travel on a weekly basis. Don't blame me for that. Uh, so, uh, but that would not have bothered me. I, I, you, the thing about here, I was sold on Bruno before I ever met him, but thanks to the cowboy. And of course I, I learned so much from Watts, good things and bad things, folks. I get it. Bill had his, had some wonderful, uh, attributes and he had some that weren't so wonderful, but he was my guy and he helped me a lot. He got me, I would not be where I am today. It had not been for the cowboy teaching me the ropes and being my mentor. What Watts said when he went to New York, his third year in the business, Red Wild Red Berry got Cowboy booked in uh, in the Garden for Vince McMahon Senior. Our Bart booked in New York, and the one guy that gravitated to him and said he wanted to work with him was Bruno. So to have Bruno go to the bosses and say I want to work this big kid, 300 pounder, six three out of Oklahoma can wrestle, you know, smart guy. So Bill sold me on Bruno for being that loyal guy. So to do it right, he became Bruno's tag team partner. He being cowboy. So I heard all the Bruno stories on these road trips. Watts and I would go on. Uh, so he was quote unquote over in my mind before I ever met him. And he, and they say, you didn't never meet your heroes or whatever. Uh, well, that's, that may be true in some situations, but it was not true with Bruno. He was a, everything he was billed to be and more. And so, uh, so if I had to, if I was going to work with him on a weekly basis, I'd have made it work some as best I could. So it just, it just didn't come about because of the travel, but, uh, it was the fact that Heard was trying to pop on the WWE influence, the big WWE black cloud, always hovering over Atlanta and CNN center. And that we had to always react and, and it was just bullshit. Just play your game, man. Just play your game and get better for your team and move on. And don't worry about what everybody else does. Yes. What do you learn early in wrestling? Don't worry about the shit you can't affect. And we can't affect uh, how WWF at that time was being booked. Let's keep it moving. Let's talk about somebody who I know was over with you. Elvira did some commercials for Halloween Havoc leading up to the event. Uh, did you have any interaction with Elvira? Would this have been a Sharon Sadello thing? What do you remember about Elvira? Well, look, back on Sharon Sadello, uh, she was a very bright lady, attractive. But here's all I need to tell you about Sharon Sadello. She fell in love with Oli and they lived. That's hard to envision. I'm trying to erase my memory right now. Uh, Elvira was a hell of a nice lady and man, did she have a, she was very, uh, uh, she had her, her, uh, I'm trying to think how to say this without being a tur total turd and a sexist. She had great cleavage. She had big cans, Jim. She had big well, cans. Biggins, big old goodens. There's only two kinds of cans, big old goodens and good old biggins. Uh, I, I think, know that. And I she, think there was a thing back in the day. Um, take old biddies. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. She was, but she was very nice to work with. I was around when she did some promos, you know, she was very nice to work with. She was very appreciative of the work, uh, and a nice lady. So, and quite frankly, she was a, her, her on involved in Halloween Havoc was a real timely casting. That's what she was known for Halloween and, you know, 
scary movies and things of that nature. So, uh, I, I enjoyed being around her in that regard, but I obviously wasn't around her as much as I would have liked to have been, but thank God there was no Bluetooth then. Oh my gosh. I love you for that. I've probably been in jail. Let's, uh, let's recap something else that's happening here at the end of September on our March to Halloween having Arn Anderson and Tully Blanchard give their notice. And they dropped the belts that very night and they're on a plane to the WWF the following day. Uh, we've talked about this recently on Arn Anderson's new podcast right here on Westwood one. Just look for the word Arn A R N anywhere you enjoy podcasts and you'll find it there. That's the name of the podcast Arn. Uh, but chat me up when, when Arn and Tully leave, do you feel like, oh no, this is a real chink in the armor from a, uh, a Jim Crockett promotion standpoint. Hell yeah. You lose two talents as good as arguably they're the best tag team in the business at that time. You know, Cornette must say, God damn, it's Midnight Express. You son of a bitch. And I'm not going to argue that point either. They're they're Midnight Express as good as I ever saw, but that also good as I ever saw comment would include Arn and Tully. And, uh, I just thought they were phenomenal and yeah, losing star players like that is, you know, like that'd be like, you know, Patriots losing Brady or somebody and it's not, don't look good. So, uh, he, he was, uh, they're just, they're, they're phenomenal. And I just, uh, yeah, it hurt. And they're good. They're great in the locker room. They're good leaders, you know, aren't great sense of humor and Tully. It was Tully and you know, both of them had a lot of street smarts and, and wrestling savvy. They could help others if they, you know, if others would come to them and ask. Uh, so uh, yeah, it, hurt. it was not good. It was, it was, it was very upsetting and it made you think, oh my God, could this be the beginning of the end? We're losing two of our stalwarts. We're losing the middle of our lineup. And what are we going to do about it? Well, you got to make new stars. But here's the thing, folks. That's easy to say. You just can't replicate personality, charisma, uh, reliability and athleticism, uh, by waving your magic wand. And that's what we were, this, we could, we never replaced Arn and Tully in the, in that world at, down there at that time. Never. Let's mention that, uh, on the way here, there's a clash of the champions. It's clash eight and they're calling yep. it fall brawl 89. Of course, we know fall brawl is going to become a pay-per-view in about four years. Uh, but this one goes down on September 12th. It does a 4.7 rating, which means roughly 2.4 million homes are watching about 5.3 million viewers. Uh, it's an interesting card. We've recently covered this with, uh, with some of our podcasts, but the main event is flair and sting on one side, Dick Slater and great Muda on the other. Of course, this was originally supposed to be flair and sting versus Terry funk and great Muda, but funk has uh, sent in a video saying that he's not allowed to compete. He's in a hospital. He won't be able to make it. So they name Dick Slater as the replacement. Of course, as you might imagine, uh, Terry Funk comes out of the hospital just for this angle and puts a plastic bag over Ric Flair's head and tries to suffocate him. Yep. And at the same time, Slater's hitting Sting's ankle several times with a branding iron and the faces are both going to be left laying and out. They got four and a quarter stars based on the wrestling observer after 19 minutes and 16 seconds. As you can imagine, Flair and Sting get the win, but by a DQ, but I'm mentioning, I'm mm. mentioning all of this because this suffocation angle, boy, this was a hot topic. Was it not? Yeah. It made us look bad. It made the wrestling guys, all those damn wrestling people, you know, they're at it again. Those goddamn gypsies, those carnies. Damn. How's that? How's that going to play at somebody's house with children? 
because uh, mommy, I know where those bags are. They're in the cabinet. So yeah, it's not good. It wasn't good. It was, and look, if, if I'm sure that all involved had to do all over again, it would not have happened. There've been a, but there would have been a better idea to get heat from Terry onto Nate than a plastic bag ill conceived and ain't nobody loves respects Terry fucking more than me, but that was the, that one just didn't hit the strike zone. Something I wanted to bring up here is, uh, a lawsuit that dusty Rhodes is under. And I know at this point, dusty's with the WWF, but this lawsuit is going to get people in the business talking because, uh, a wrestler named Steve de Blasio is suing because he was injured in the summer of 83 when the booker dusty Rhodes told him to take a bump over the top rope for a DQ finish. And Steve said he'd never done that bump before, let alone over the top rope and didn't want to do it. But Steve is going to allege that dusty Rhodes threatened to sue him or not sue him, but fire him if he didn't. So of course he does. And when he does it at 450 pounds, the rope breaks, Steve crashes onto the floor, crushes both of his ankles. And, uh, he's looking for a payday here. Now Mm. it's, it's the reason this comes up is because we're really contesting now whether or not wrestling is scripted and choreographed. Now, Steve would write the final outcome in all the matches is the two men in one-on-one competition. And of course, Dusty would say pro wrestling matches are not choreographed in his response. But then when he's at the trial under oath, he's forced to admit that it's quote unquote, 100% show business. And he would compare the storylines and choreography to that of a soap opera. And also during the trial, Steve's attorney, Mike Napon would ask whether or not the scars on Dusty's forehead were from purposely cutting himself with a razor blade to read during the matches and Dusty's under oath. So he has to admit that this is the case. And they also discussed whether or not Rhodes had threatened to blackball Steve out of the business. And when they really pressed Dusty about why Steve de Blasio did not make it further in the business, Dusty says, quote, he had no athletic ability, no charisma, which you have to have. He was as dry as a piece of bacon. I'm the most charismatic guy you've ever had sit in this room here. This is just the most dusty testimony ever. Uh, what do you remember about this lawsuit and, uh, the sort of the fallout of them having to testify sort of the nitty gritty details of professional wrestling under oath? Oh, well, first of all, 83, I was happily, happily, uh, employed by the big cowboy in mid South wrestling. So uh, I heard, you know, you hear the, the, the r- rumor mill, you know, they, like they say, telephone, telegraph, tell a wrestler. That's kind of what the era we were in because there's no social media. It's people call and then the stories would get embellished because it's like telling fishing stories. The first liar ain't got a chance. So, um, uh, but here, the advice I give anybody, if you tell the truth is a real good habit to get into, it really is more of us should try it. Uh, and I just thought that, uh, you know, the, when you go, when you're, when you go to a, a, a especially in a trial. And you're, as you pointed out under oath, you got no alternative but to tell the truth. So tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. So help you God or whatever your, however it goes. So, uh, I, 
That's that. Uh, that's all I can say. I, I I would not have tried to cover. Dusty tried to protect the business, which is a very admirable thing. But for many many years, more people knew that wrestling was a showbiz entity and a byproduct of vaudeville or or uh, a traveling show or whatever the case may be, broad Broadway, whatever. Uh, then the, uh, those of us wanted to admit. That's why everybody was always he, he watched it when he heels signed autographs. If you if you lost a fight and watched his territory as a wrestler to a civilian, as he called him, a fan, he fired your ass on the spot, no matter who you were. He said, we can't have people believing that they can whip our stars. So if you get your ass whipped, you're out. So, uh, that was Watch's philosophy. I think they took it too far, obviously, but, uh, and, but Dusty was merely trying to protect the business because that's what he had been taught to do from day one. And he maintained that philosophy that he's taught to by all those old promoters in Texas, the funks, Paul Bosch, you know, uh, then of course with Eddie Graham and, and Bill, all those guys, he was influenced by that. And then he influenced another generation of guys, the same, same mindset. So it's admirable that you want to keep the genie in the bottle, but to think nobody knows how to pull the cork is a misnomer. In case you're wondering, ultimately Steve de Blasio would win. On uh, June 13th, 1983, he's going to be awarded 300 and some odd thousand dollars uh, in the verdict against Thornton, who was his opponent that night. But I guess the joke's on him because nobody knows where that guy is. Uh, Leslie Thornton was wrestling as the professional, but at this point he's somewhere in Canada and nobody's really heard from him in a long time. So I doubt he collected anything, uh, but I wanted to bring it up because I don't know when we'll have a chance to talk about that mm-hmm. lawsuit ever again. Um, uh, we should mention that Meltzer is starting to see, uh, some cracks in the NWA, uh, even after Ted Turner has purchased it, he would write, there's a lot that can be said about the current state of the NWA, but the emotion I keep hearing from those who follow the promotion is more and more one of frustration. A lot of the problems are nobody's fault. There are certain things like the hurricane last weekend, which destroyed the show in Richmond and forced the cancellation of Charlotte. That's out of everyone's hands. Perhaps if the NWA created better relations with its audience and been more honest over the last two years about no shows at the house shows, maybe the public would accept the occasional unforeseen and unavoidable problems, such as the hurricane. Maybe not, but one would think so. Injuries are bound to happen with the style of wrestling being so hard hitting and the schedule having such few days of rest that has to be accepted as part of the game. If you are one who wants a rough style of wrestling. But over the last week, the NWA was plagued with no shows. Once again, one from an injury, another from a wrestler who had a tree through his house from the hurricane and another whose girlfriend was savagely attacked at an apartment burglary. And it goes on the promotion. Can't be blamed for any of this, but the promotion continues to suffer negative consequences from all of it because it results in disappointed fans at house shows following the promotion on television. This past weekend continued with this frustration. Some again, the promotion is not, uh, isn't responsible for all of this, but it still doesn't help them. And some of which they are responsible for and are not being held accountable. So the gist is no shows are rampant and fans are frustrated. And this starts to feel like a problem that we would hear in WCW a decade later, who's to blame for this in your opinion. Well, if Buck stops with upper management, uh, it's like saying, well, uh, you know, 
the uh, your favorite football team loses a big game, who do you blame it on? Well, that's easy to me. You blame it on the head coach. He's the one that hired all these cats to coach them. He's the one that hired, brought the recruited players to come in. If they don't, all of them don't deliver in their specific roles, and it's, it's the guy that brought them in's fault. Accountability starts at the top. I, I when all this started happening, I can tell you this: when I got to uh, JCP in Charlotte, uh, my, in the right after the buyout, I there was I didn't see any difference in the way that Jimmy Crockett ran his company than than Bill did, except Jimmy was a little bit kinder, but he was still firm and he still had a set of rules that were not going to be a compromise. I never remember talents having no shows, uh, like an epidemic type, no show situation in mid South. You know, I've said the story here. We're doing TV in Shreveport, Irish Neal boys club on the, on the fairgrounds there in Shreveport, Brad Armstrong, the late, great, Brad Armstrong has worked with the late, great Dr. Destiny Williams and, and, uh, Doc was supposed to duck. He was green. He's supposed to duck a forearm from Brad. He didn't. Uh, and he, he saw it too late, tried to duck and the point of Brad's elbow caught doc right above the eye. And I immediately swelled up. He's bleeding like a stuck pig, like he'd been shot. And then he goes to the, if they finish the match, he goes to the hospital and they have to get an eye specialist there. So because I was so delicate, he got 107 stitches, no bullshit. Not Russell speak, 107 stitches. He comes back to TV looking for some sympathy from his head coach and, uh, said, Bill, what do you want me to do? He said, well, what do you mean? What I want you to do, doc, you're booked tomorrow in Biloxi. I want you to get your ass in Biloxi and work. So docs dropped his head. I was right standing right there. He dropped his head, but he couldn't, he couldn't take himself to a place where, oh, Bill, I'm hurting. I'm sore. You know, I don't think I should work. Need to say nothing. He played. Now, I'm not saying it's right or wrong scenario, but that was kind of how the, the lay of the land was because at the end of the day, the booker's trying to get you to go to work because that's how he can pay you. If Doc had sat home and not been booked, even because of the injury that happened in Watchers Ring, Doc was not getting any money. So uh, it's a funny scenario, but I, when the no-shows became more and more prominent in WCW because there was very little done to address the matter from upper management to the talents. And so, okay, this, you know, if, if it's, if it's a, it remotely possible for you to come to work, your ass better be at work. Uh, if not, well, we got major problems and we're going to, we're not going to be able to do business. I bring this up because it does feel like that's something that Bill Watts is going to personally sort of sniff out in WCW for better or worse. He changed a lot of things with guys being fined for being late and all that. I mean, he was definitely a, di a different type of leader than Jim heard. And I think, uh, maybe you're seeing, uh, some of that here as a result. Um, let's talk about the power hour. Uh, the reason I bring this up is, um, they're plugging the wrong stuff on the shows on the way here. They're promising a Ric Flair press conference. And Dan Spivey versus Dick Murdoch, an interview with Robin Green and Flair and Sting in a tag team match. None of it ever happens. So the miscommunication is is more rampant than just what we're advertising on the house shows. It's it's TV as well. And this is a television company. Were there any sort of checks and balances in place, you know, with the Turner people 
or are you guys just sort of left to your own devices to figure out what you want to put on the air? Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you'll hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. I don't think we should uh, blame any of the Turner people for this uh, uh, snafu. This is a deal where the booking committee, of which I was a part of, so I'm not casting stones, I'm not taking my share of the responsibility. That's how I live my life. Uh, and then changes changes would be made. And here's how the changes would be made. They 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 sit in the we sit in, the, in our conference room. We book the card, whatever, book the matches, and then uh, just book it like you would in a regular scenario. But because there's such little uh, uh, oh gosh respect, I think maybe or confidence, maybe better said. In the in the booking committee, that the talents seem to always have some sort of automatic rejection. So, in other words, if Rick didn't like the booking idea, it simply wasn't going to be done. There was very little compromise when he got in his in a, in a certain mindset that he felt uncomfortable or that, that we were doing the wrong thing. Or do, yeah, we're doing the wrong thing. And by the way, we might have been doing the wrong thing. He might not have been wrong. How it was all handled sometimes was another matter entirely. So what you would have is you'd have the, the production people, uh, would get the card and then it would change. And sometimes it would change without, with little or no notice. And this, the, or we get to TV. So, okay, here's what we're doing. Well, wait a minute. What about, where's that Rick? Flair? No, we're not doing that. Well, when do we know that? Well, Tuesday, but you know, it just fell through the cracks. Don't worry about it. That was that, that, that glib bullshit. So, uh, it was a, so we didn't have a captain, man. We didn't have a rudder in the water. And if you don't, you, you can't, you can't sail anywhere, man, without direction. No directionless don't work. So that's what that was, Conrad. It was just a matter of talent. Sometimes didn't like the booking and I, here's what I always go back to. And I know people are going to pick up on this more often than not, not a hundred percent of the time. I'm not seeing it in, in AEW whatsoever at this point. When you have active performers involved in the screenwriting, the screenplays, the production, the booking, whatever you want to say, and whatever terms you want to use, it's pro wrestling. It's a booker. If it's a, if it's a sports entertainment, it's a producer, same shit, folks. Don't get carried away here. And, uh, I think that, uh, there's infinite issues that sometimes have been around to say a guy's a star wrestler and he's got somebody on the book committee that he, he had a run in with uh, 10 years ago that are, those wounds don't heal easy for these cats. So I always thought, and I still do that. It's a very tenuous and sensitive situation when you have active participants, uh, making, you know, making these creative decisions. 
the good thing about AEW is that our guys have titles, they have responsibilities, and they're, they're, they're being paid for this administrative work. Whereas I don't know that any of the guys on the booking committee got a lot of extra money for being on it. I sure as hell to get one dime part of my deal. You know, here's your, you know, it's your job this week. So I think a lot of them are that way, but a lot of guys were happy to have a hand in the, in the, in the creative because they could protect their interest. And that offended some other guys that were on the outside looking in at the creative committee. It was a bad scenario. It was a system built to fail at that point in time in history in the late eighties. It's uh, it's really a struggle. You know, Meltzer's going to say that he doesn't want to speculate how much money that Austin, they're in their first year of ownership as they're approaching the one year anniversary. But he says there's lots of propaganda by competitors trying to lure the wrestlers away. who are trying to, you know, make people, I don't know, concerned about their future. Hey, sure. we don't know how long they're going to stay in business. They're losing money left and right. You ought to jump ship. And Aaron on, on our podcast has said that he wasn't sure that the company was going to stay in business himself. Uh, and that's, you know, this, this is a, a rough situation to say the least. When we, when you start to hear that, Hey, uh, television revenues down our house show business is struggling. And even when you watch the show, you would see the same ads over and over and over. Were you concerned at all that, Hey man, I might be out of a fucking job here soon. Or did you have confidence that Turner was in it for the long term and that they were going to figure out a way to pull the nose up? Well, like I mentioned earlier, when Arn and Tully left, it didn't make a lot of us, uh, to quote one of my uh, favorite Eagle songs, didn't, we did not have the peaceful, easy feeling that they're always right. Because why would they argue with one of the top one or two tag teams in the entire world who had made their home in that, in that, uh, in that company and the NWA brand, the WCW brand, why would they leave? And McMahon was not given big guarantees at that time. You know, they, you, you kind of, you went in and what's a good formula. I think they got a, you got a, you got guaranteed something, but not all you needed. And so that money was incentive to produce and perform and sell tickets or merch, whatever the case may be. So, uh, yeah, it was, un- it was, uh, it was uneasy, uh, honestly, but <clears throat> that's not un- the, 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 the competitors want to create an uneasiness. They want to plant the negative in your, within in your locker room. And one way they can do that is to take some of your talent or to put their TV show on head to head against yours that you're trying to grow. Uh, so I, it was uneasy. Yeah, it was uneasy, but look, I had confidence in Ted. Ted's a, a hard headed bastard. He loved wrestling. I, I used to sit in Ted's box at the Atlanta Fulton County stadium for the, for the Braves games. Uh, and he, he, he and I shoot the shit. It was a, it, we had a good relationship. Uh, he could never remember my name. So I was kind of humbling because he introduced me to Jane Fonda one time as this is my wrestling guy, patting me on the back. I want to say, yeah, I, uh, hello, Mrs. Uh, I don't want to call her Mrs. Fonda, Miss Fonda, Mrs. Turner. And I give her, I said, no, I'm Jim Ross. How are you, man? <laughs> In this case, you need to know that somewhere for, you know, something down the road, but yeah, it's, we in leadership and, but we had the money and I didn't think they would fold the tent a year by any stretch of imagination. Well, it, it's obviously good enough that Arn and Tully, you know, they're giving their notices to the WWF. They've been gone for a year. And they're, they're coming back in or trying to come back in. And I'm sure that's the story for another day. The whole debacle that was, uh, Tully Blanchard 
not getting an opportunity to come back, but let's keep it moving here and talk about some changes that they do want to make on TBS. Allegedly there's a memo that comes out from TBS saying no more blood and no more heavy, unnecessary violence, which of course means the pay-per-view will not have these same restrictions just on TV. And I think this is around the same time where you start saying parental discretion is advised on the pay-per-view shows. Are you starting to wonder, you know, just how far they're going to push this? I mean, dusty had gotten in trouble with this a year prior and that's the reason his in the WWF, but now here in 89, we're hearing more of it again. Hey guys, as a reminder, no more blood and tone down the violence that sort of goes against what, what you came up with in the business. And now this is a new ball game. Well, it, it was you can't go from feast or famine, feast to famine type thing. It's just, there's gotta be some middle ground here to have blood for blood's sake is a horrible, horrible idea to have absolutely a band that there can never be ever, ever any self-induced blood is also a bad idea. Uh, I never say never, but I think sometimes in, in the spirit of the presentation in the spirit of the, in the heartbeat of the booking, sometimes, uh, some blood is called for. Now I can tell you that I thought still to this day that as good a match as I was been fortunate to call this year was, uh, Cody and Dustin back in Vegas in the, in the, in the pay-per-view I, uh, but did, I thought, and I told him this, so it's not talking about school. I said, I said, Hey, big boy, I think you got a little too much color, right? He said, yeah, I got a little carried away. The adrenaline JR adrenaline. I get it. He didn't do it to spite the system. He didn't do it to be, you know, negative. He just got, he was excited and he wanted to give the drama that it needed. And, and nobody can debate to me and convince me that that, uh, that blood in that match didn't, I don't want to say make it, it made it more, much more dramatic. And that's what those kids were shooting for drama, big brother versus little brother, finally coming to a head. They're walking down, you know, the, the thoroughfare in Deadwood, somebody's going to die basically. So I had no issues with that, man. I, I, I just think it's got to be used smartly. And, uh, you know, unlike one match, I was hyping for cowboy. We had a uh, 20 man first blood battle Royal. That means that 19 of them are going to bleed. And one of them's not going to bleed is going to win. That's a little overkill in my view. Let's talk about something that happened on the radio in this era, which I found a little interesting. Uh, flair is doing a uh, radio appearance for a radio station in Albany, New York, and he's allowing callers to call in and ask wrestling questions. And Meltzer would say that flair came off really well. And the DJs plugging the show kept saying that flair was the real world champion and how he'd beat Hogan. Like it was nothing, but flair doesn't want to, um, sort of mess up any opportunity to maybe work in New York. So he never comments on that. However, when one caller asked about a unification match, the DJ and Ric Flair assume the caller is talking about Hogan flair and flair says he would love to have a match, but then the caller says, no, I meant with you and Jerry Lawler and flair is incredulous at this. He said that essentially he's upset. Anyone would even consider Lawler or his title comparable to flair and his world championship. And he finished the, uh, the tirade by saying Jerry Lawler is a disgrace to professional wrestling. What do you think that's about here? I mean, this is not something where these guys have ever worked together like on, on this, this stage. 
I know that Flair did some shots in Memphis with Lawler, but it's not like this is going to be paid off in an NWA ring. Do you no. think Rick was taking it personal? Some of the, the stuff Lawler had said in Memphis on TV. Absolutely. Uh, he wouldn't stand up for an angle or for another match. He was offended that Jerry would, uh, uh, make some of his, you know, Lawler's promos from a promo standpoint, uh, quality standpoint, I should say, it's hard to beat Lawler just uh, as a heel or baby face. And especially, especially in Memphis, uh, he was incredible. Not that he wasn't incredible in other places, but Memphis was his, that's where the throne was for the King Memphis, Tennessee. So I think sometimes Jerry, because he had the autonomy, he'd have, he didn't have a, uh, 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 what do you call it? The, he didn't have a, a he was nobody was bending him or what do you call it? You know, when you said the, he wasn't being uh, filtered, I should say filtered, no filter for the King in Memphis. And so sometimes when we, none of us have filters that we kind of go into business for ourselves and it's not always the right decision. I've done that myself on this show. So, uh, but I, I think it was personal and, and, and Jerry, or excuse me, Rick took it personally because quite honestly, if you really want to get down to brass tacks, uh, those two guys are, are about as highly skilled as anybody I've been around in pro wrestling. And, uh, they have so much in common away from the ring, quite frankly, partying, enjoying the ladies, things of that nature. Even though Lauder doesn't drink as his famous saying would be lips that touch alcohol will never touch mine. Uh, that was the King. So I, I don't know. I just think it's personal and because we're not going anywhere with it. Not that that would probably, that might've been the best match of the night Lawler versus flair. If it had ever come about, but it, it, it didn't come about on the national stage, but it came about several times in Memphis. And I'm sure that some of those promos leading into it were offensive to, to, to Nate. Let's keep it moving here and talk about some behind the scenes. We got two more notes before we get to uh, the actual show Halloween havoc one is about the status of Eddie Gilbert, Missy Hyatt and Polly dangerously. Meltzer would write that Gilbert and Missy are under contract through February. And since they're six figure deals, they're not going to walk out on them. Even though Missy's last NWA appearance has already aired and uh, she won't be around at all. And at this point, Eddie's going to be used to put over the top guys on TV and work prelims at house shows dangerously. Who was also under contract, apparently worked out a release with Jim Hurd, but the WWF said they wouldn't make him an offer until they saw the NWA contract release because they were nervous about there being some sort of litigation mm-hmm. and I don't know. I just find this interesting because I think all of these folks probably are going to land, are going to land, land in the WWF and that doesn't wind up happening for any of them. What do you remember being sort of the rap on the status of this trio amongst the office and, and your, your brethren? Well, I think that it seems to me my best recollection, the first time I ever spoke to Vince McMahon. I was a working for cowboy in mid South and, uh, he wanted to hire Missy. He meaning, uh, uh, Vince and, and cowboy had still not come around that beautiful women belonged in a locker room on a regular basis. Uh, and thought, you know, she, her, she, her worth was short lived. Uh, and, but ironically, she was one of the most marketable, uh, people we had on the roster as far as appeal and not sex appeal. Yes, I get it. She's a very beautiful woman. Uh, but, uh, uh, I talked to, I, uh, the phone call came in and I said, uh, George and our receptionist there and Bixby says, uh, uh, Vincent man on the phone for you. And he said, uh, give it to Jim. 
And I said, what, what do you mean? Tell her, tell him whatever you want. If, she, if, if, well, I got nothing for her here. So I, I said, well, then why don't we just let her go? She have another job. She's going to be out of work or not, you know, anything, you know, unscrupulous. And if she, if he makes her a big star, people are going to remember where she came from. Well, you handle it. So, okay. So I go up to upstairs to my office and talk to him, talk to Vince and, and we had a nice little, you know, chitty chat, uh, obligatory banter. And then he said, I'd like to, like to talk to you about, uh, obtaining the services of Missy Hyatt. And I said, well, we could probably make that happen. And, uh, so we worked out our deal and I don't think there's any financial restitution or nothing like that. This outdates timing, you know, TV appearances and things like that. He wanted to bring her in early so that they could shoot some vignettes. And I remember, uh, he was talking to me about putting her in a, there's some brand Conrad of a, there's a dress leather. Uh, there's a leather, a hot leather brand that, uh, made in California. I can't think of the name of it to save my soul. But he made Vince made Missy some of that leather, real slick leather, uh, tight fitting uh, cleavage showing uh, dresses and things like that. So he was going to have a Missy's Manor type thing or whatever. I don't know what happened to that deal. It, it farted in church and went on by this by the way. Uh, so that was how that worked. Bill just had run out of things he thought to do with Missy. So instead of adding other women of that are also beautiful and trying to keep that uh, male demo a little bit happier on that era. Uh, he just threw his hands up. So then we had, well, we had beautiful women there, but, and I'll tell you some of the most emotional things we did then was dark journey and Missy Hyatt for whatever reason, it got over much like how the women have resonated in WWE to their audience and how we are working to make the same thing happen in AEW It's a big work in progress for us because we're just getting, we've had four shows. WWE has uh, done a really nice job of cultivating that. And it's just, it's just a damn shame. It's been. 20 years too late. It should have been happening 20 years ago is what I'm saying. It's not too late, but so that was the deal, man. Eddie and Bill, uh, Eddie got caught in Eddie went to New York as a favor to Vince senior from, uh, the Memphis territory, maybe Eddie's dad. I'm not sure. Uh, and was the young, pretty young baby face, handsome young kid. But now he's gotten a little older and he had not got any bigger. And I think the size thing bit him in the ass, unfortunately, because Eddie Gilbert had a brilliant mind. It was a very underrated worker, no doubt about it, but he was, ne he was never going to be six, two or three. He was going to be five, 10 or whatever. And I think Cowboy saw that that's not his cup of tea right now. Let's keep it going. Brickhousejr.com. Use that promo code JR. You'll get 15% off your first order. Listen, the best way to support our show here, which is free for you every single Thursday morning. It's to support our great sponsors. No better way to do that than to go to brickhousejr.com and use that promo code JR. Let's get to the show, man. Meltzer would uh, recap this thing by saying Halloween Havoc was far from the worst pay-per-view event in history, but from a live perspective, the card came off like just another ordinary night of NWA wrestling. There wasn't the aura of specialness on the card. While the promotion put together the most creative batch of television commercials ever for a major show. The backbone of the NWA, which is the great wrestling action on the big shows just wasn't there. And we get started with two very, very capable performers, the Z man and Mike Rotundo. They've got plenty of time to do the match here. 13 minutes, 23 seconds. Ultimately Z man gets the win when he does a cross body block off the middle rope and, uh, zinc reverses it for the pin three quarters of a star Z man. I guess, you know, the, the hot new hand in town. 
Mike mm-hmm. Rotundo is, um, you know, he's, he's going to have several different gimmicks that he's going to try out. I don't know that any ever really hit for him until he becomes IRS for Vince McMahon. This match to me though, was just too long. I think that the crowd in Philadelphia agreed. You can even hear some boring chants. Um, but Z man looks like a million bucks. And I guess that's what Jim Hurd was pushing at the time. what do you think? Yeah. They're, they're the, the object of booking the matches to get Z man over in a positive way. I couldn't agree with you more about the, uh, match being too long. 13, 23 of bell to bell times too much, uh, for those two cat guys. It had nothing to do with their skill sets, folks. They, they, Mike Rotunda had been, uh, had, was just not over. And that was his fault. That was, he, he wasn't booked well. Uh, he was, Mike was better in an ensemble cast in my view. Hence, uh, uh, the Mike Rotunda and million dollar man, I thought it was a great pairing. I thought Mike was at his best there. Uh, not that our IRS wasn't an interesting character. It was, I just thought Mike fit the varsity club was a good, good example. Sure. That worked for me. Mm-hmm. And Mike was a great complimentary piece in that deal. But bottom line, you said it, two guys that were not over should not have been the first match. And they damn sure shouldn't have gone, uh, 13 and a half minutes. Let's keep it moving. Talk about the next match here. We've got the Samoan SWAT team teaming up with the Samoan Savage. They're going to have Oliver Hupperdink with them and they're going to call him the big kahuna. They're going to take on the midnight express and Dr. Death. The entrance is very, very creative for this. If you've never seen it, the Samoans are going to have these giant torches that they toss back and forth and do a little bit of a stage show. Pretty impressive. Uh, and then once they actually get down to the ring, they're doing a lot of stalling that comes off very believable because you've essentially got six heels here who are about to get it on. And these are big burly badasses, and they just tease this so often enough that it does have an air of realism. But again, I think the match probably goes a little too long, 18 minutes and 16 seconds. Uh, Bobby Eaton is particularly very, very impressive here. Uh, and of course your boy, Dr. Death looks like an absolute monster. This is probably peak for me, for him, uh, two and three quarters of a star, uh, Samoan SWAT team and the Samoan Savage get the win when Savage pins lane. Uh, what'd you think of the, uh, of, of the way this one was booked where Cornette is trying to interfere and accidentally bumps into lane. And that tells a story onto its own. It, it provided Cornette's interference provided an out, uh, for his team that, that would allow the announcers, Bob Cottle and myself to, uh, explain and, and, and give the, 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 the narration. So that nothing that hadn't been done a lot before where managers cause it, they lost their team. Then you have the little faux argument at the end and all that stuff. Pretty traditional. It was pretty, that was not unusual. Uh, I thought that it would, it didn't need to go 18 minutes to accomplish what they needed to. But I will say that, uh, if you watch this match folks and you know, watch one guy in it, you know, of course I, you think I'm going to say Dr. Death and, and I might say that, uh, on any other occasion, but Bobby Eaton in this match was especially amazing. Now I know, uh, they're going to have a big, uh, I think it's in Knoxville, big thing for Bobby Eaton on December the 14th. I should get more information that Conrad and maybe we can help him out a little bit with our, uh, with something, uh, Bobby's getting this kind of a fundraiser type deal. You know, unfortunately the, you know, I used to preach the guys about saving their money and paying their taxes. I think most of them ignored me, 
And uh, I think that's a, that's a promoters and, and administrators that don't push that. Uh, they don't push it because the talents are independent contractors and they don't want uh, any, uh, they don't give anybody a leg to stand on that. Well, why aren't we employees? I don't have the answer to that why they're not employees. It's all about the financial. It's a bottom line thing. But uh, Bobby has had some hard luck. He's had some health issues. I love him. I think he's as good as I ever saw. He reminded Bobby Eaton reminded me a lot of Ray Stevens and Patterson to, uh, to the basic same degree in, in that everything seemed easy. Everything seemed natural. The timing was impeccable. So, uh, but if you watch this, go check out Bobby's work and, and see where he was always at the right place at the right time to make sure that whomever he was in the ring with was going to get a shine. And he's just a, a spectacular, a human being and a worker and, Hopefully, uh, we'll tell you more about his, uh, his, uh, celebration or whatever they're, they're doing, uh, in, De- in, on De- in December. Cause I, I'd like to go to that myself, quite frankly, let's keep it going. Let's talk about the next match. We got Tommy rich and the Cuban assassin. I can't believe it, but a Thez press gets the win in eight minutes and 26 seconds for Tommy rich, the boring chance start before the guys ever lock up. Philadelphia is not in the mood for this and neither is Dave Meltzer. He gives it a dud. But man, you want to talk about some boo birds. They are out in full force for the dynamic dudes who are out next as the free birds are going to be defending their NWA tag team titles, trying to fend off the dynamic dudes. And believe it or not, Jim Cornette is advising the dynamic dudes. I don't, I think they're careful to say he's not managing them. He's just uh, acting in as an, as an advisor, which is just remarkable. 11 minutes and 28 seconds. The dudes are booed out of the damn building. Michael Hayes is at his strutting and moonwalking best two and a quarter stars or two and a half stars rather. Uh, while Meltzer said that the crowd is into it, there's actually no heat for the meat, uh, for the match. And, um, it's a shame because Shane Douglas has an opportunity to be a, a much bigger star than what he's being presented to be here. And I know you're great, close personal friends with Johnny Ace, and I'm sure you were pulling for him here. <laughs> Yeah. Well, Hey, again, I mentioned this earlier. I take full responsibility. I, I suggested a dynamic dudes. I was reading, you know, one of the trending things at that time. And, uh, to the younger audience that we were instructed to try to try to find and capture and bring into the fold was skateboarding, uh, kind of like, uh, you know, it was a new fad. Was it going to work? And of course we've seen it's become a huge industry. So, uh, Darby Allen, AEW used to get skateboard his gimmick. And, uh, it, you know, he's a skateboarder. I mean, it's a, it's a real deal. Uh, the irony of this, if you watch any of the dynamic dudes, uh, matches or presentation, you never saw, uh, uh, two left footed Johnny on the skateboard. He, he couldn't do it. So that's like one of those deals where you put somebody in a scaffold match that has a fear of height, probably not the best logic you could utilize. So, you know, we're trying to get two young guys. I always thought, and cause I, I was running so much in the UWF when Eddie Gilbert was doing some booking out there, Eddie was really high on, uh, Shane Douglas. And so was, uh, Jim Barnett. We used to tell Jim Barnett in the, in our meetings in Dallas, uh, that, uh, I said, Mr. Barnett, this is Shane Douglas, those blue eyes, that blonde hair. He is the next, be- oh, I know God, he's beautiful. He's beautiful. I said, uh, Hey, uh, Jim, just between you and I. The son of a bitch is hung like a horse. Oh my God. 
he run down to the bathroom. I don't know what he did down there, but I didn't go to follow him in to, for the rest of the story. But uh, Shane was a good-looking kid, good athlete. I thought he did great things in ECW. Uh, but but the Freebirds uh, had s- so much more charisma. It overshadowed and, and amplified the lack of charisma that the dynamic dudes had in that particular uh, pairing. So just no chemistry, bad booking. So I raised my hand on that one, but it wasn't great. And there's nothing we could do to make it great. Uh, but I'm glad that Shane finally got to do some stuff on his own. It's really a matter of how you're used, how you're used, how you, what position do you play? So uh, I, I, but the Freebirds showed everybody that night, they had more charisma in their, in their pinky toe, uh, than some of the folks on the dynamic dudes team had their whole body. I just can't believe that this is, uh, this is a real thing, you know, that Jim Hurd named this team, the dynamic dudes, and he put <laughs> these two dudes on skateboards and somehow you guys thought it would be cool to put Jim Cornette, a heel manager with a baby face team. This is just, Hey, Cornette was on the booking committee. All he had to do was say no. And I'm not so sure part of that wasn't his idea. Conrad Cornette had as much to say about that whole deal and this show as anybody in the booking committee. So if he had not wanted to do it, I'm sure that he would not have had to do it. Uh, but he may have a different story than that. That's fine. Uh, but, uh, you know, it wasn't a Cornette against the world thing, but he was, he was doing what he thought was going to help him work. We're trying to shine, shine doo-doo and that just don't work. So yeah, heard love the dynamic dudes. He loved the skateboard thing. He loved the trendy stuff. All the young kids are going to love this. They're going to be bringing, uh, he even said to me one time, they'll start bringing their skateboards to the arena. I said, well, where are they going to use them at? What are they going to, where are they going to, in, you know, uh, section three, uh, seat four. I don't get it. So, and, and I, I thought that the skateboard thing was not my idea. Putting, putting Laurinaitis and, uh, Shane together was, but I didn't envision them at that time being a skateboard duo, especially when one of them could not skateboard. Man, you want to talk about shine and doo-doo. That's what they're trying to do with this Steiner brother promo that we see next. Lord bless them. Scott is trying his very best with a young Chris Cruz. I guess we didn't mention this, but this is the debut of Chris Cruz in WCW and he's doing his best, but you can tell he's super nervous and it doesn't help when he's out there with two guys who are not completely comfortable doing promos yet. Steiner's going to go on to cut hellified promos as big Papa pump. That is not who we see on camera here. He's struggling in a major way. And then Rick tries to bring it home. Another major mess. One of the worst promos in the history of wrestling. We're going to play it for you here on the show. Uh, and poor Chris Cruz, he was in a bad spot before we talk about the shitty promo, talk to (laughs) us a little bit about Chris Cruz, uh, how he got into the fold here, because it's a name that we're going to see for the rest of WCW, but we don't really hear from much more in the wrestling space. Uh, well, he's all over Facebook. Cause I follow him on Facebook, Chris Cruz. Uh, he's on this little, uh, campaign of exposing bad pro wrestling ads, like posters and things like that, that are going on right now. Uh, I don't know if he's, if he's helping those companies or hurting them, but he, he's a critic, uh, in that regard. And a lot of satirical, uh, kind of a, you know, a little stiff, uh, remarks. Uh, he, he was not that way at that time. Uh, but he had a, he had such a beautiful and amazing voice, uh, 
and he was a right size to be an interviewer. That w- that was in his favor. So he was a short guy with big pipes, and uh, that's a nice ingredient to start your foundation of being a pro wrestling interviewer. Uh, he became great friends with Funk, and they traveled together a lot. And I think that helped him because he could learn about the business. Uh, and I see Chris is like I said, he's all over Facebook. I think he's living in the, in the Virginia does a, I think he does radio now, but why not? He's, he's got the voice of God. So, but it's smart guy. Uh, and you know, we, we traveled some together and the announcers would hook up in the car and go, go to, you know, our TV tapings and things. So I never had any issues with Chris. He, he's, he's told somebody in a post career interview, uh, when we were all gone that I, I had this big thing about Dick Enberg. Uh, and I think I saw the, t- the title of the article said, JR's got a big thing about Dick <laughs> Enberg. I'm like, okay, what now? What? And I remember the conversation we had about that. I said, did you ever, I said, Chris, one of the key elements of our business of what we do, how we dress is consistently dressing neat, having your, having your clothes fit, have your, your, your cuffs, uh, tailored and making sure you have a great tie, great tie, not an average tie, not a a great tie. I said, Dick Enberg wears the best ties on television. And he did. He, these great bold stripes and things that should have shot. Well, and I got me, I got on that kick, but he thought I was a mark for Dick Enberg and not a mark for Dick Enberg's ties. The one thing we clarified, I was not a mark for Dick. This episode is brought to you by Pepsi wild cherry. Pepsi wild cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Title Transference aired October 27, 2004. Director James Marshall, writers Todd Slavkin, Darren Swimmer. I really like this episode, and I'm surprised that you don't like it as much as you thought you did. I actually respect your opinion more than I respect my own in general. (laughs) (laughs) When you say things are good and I check them out, they are. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen. Well, uh, we know that to not be true now because you love a big hard dick thanks to Blue Chew, but they're not a sponsor this week. So <laughs> keep it moving. What? I know we got we got we got to shake some cages over at Westwood. That was a perfect opportunity. In just a few minutes, the world will see Doom. Of course, the Steiners will see them inside the ring. Uh, my question to you, Rick St- Scott Steiner, is how are you going to fight a team you have never seen before? We have no strategy. We have we need no strategy tonight. It's a total reckless abandon. That's when you're playing our game. Because when there's no rules, no anything, you're in our ball game, you're playing our game. That's the way we like it. Yeah, you know, we got do. That's a good name for those guys, do. Because when we get done with them, it's going to be fish. We like a good fight. Who cares what happens? Who cares what happens to man? As long as we get in, you get to fight. You get to beat up. So we just do what you got to do. Rick Steiner, many voices thinking that woman will be able to distract you and cause your defeat. No, she did it to me one time. I, if I get her a chance to get in there, if I get her a chance, I'm going to take her and get it to All her. right, fans, back now to the ring live in Philadelphia. Let's talk about Doom. In the promo that you just heard, it's the absolute drizzling shits from the Steiner brothers. And 
Um, they're referencing the fact that they're wrestling two guys they've never seen, and they don't know who they are. Here's the backstory leading into this match. Robin green is a woman who is a fan of Rick Steiner and eventually becomes his girlfriend. And then she turns heel and brings in doom to take out the Steiners in the weeks leading to this match and an angle on TV woman has lured Scott into a limo. And all of a sudden we see Scott get dumped out of the limo and boots are put to him. The cameraman never pans up. So we never get to see exactly who it is, but eventually we're going to learn it's Kevin Sullivan and doom doom come to the ring, not only wearing hoods, but they've got capes on as well. Quite the presentation woman is strutting here and uh, she's looking like she's ready for the prom. Uh, it's quite the match. I love these guys. All four of them doom under the hoods to me are just, uh, I don't know, an unbeatable tag team. And I was such a fan of the Steiners as a kid, but the, the violence is so big inside the ring that a fight actually breaks out in the crowd. And, uh, that's a killer, man. You can see all the heads turn where everybody's looking at the action in the crowd instead of in the ring, but it didn't distract me from enjoying the match. Two and a quarter stars is what Meltzer gave it 15 minutes and 26 seconds. Doom gets the win when Reed gets a foreign object from woman and puts it into his mask and then nails the headbutt on the Steiners. Boom. Gets the pin. I like the, uh, the booking. I like the pairing. And, uh, I don't know, just four badass dudes. You're going to be hard pressed to find four badasses like this in a ring anytime soon. No, you're right, man. Four real men, men, uh, Ricky and, and Scott, you know, again, there's, I'd known these kids as they started because they were, they were Vern Gagne sent, uh, those guys to, uh, to cowboy and, uh, and cowboy loved them. He loved them. Uh, cause they're tough guys and they weren't going to listen to bar fights. Uh, and Nancy, God bless her soul was such a sweetheart. And Nancy had a lot of, Nancy had good timing. Nancy understood the business and she was married to Kevin Sutherland at that time, which didn't hurt her uh, on, as far as getting in the creative loop and getting books, so to speak. So, uh, I, with you, Conrad, I, I loved it. I love doom. I love the, the, they just looked like the perfect heel tag team had nothing to do with their race whatsoever, but big, thick, strong, athletic. And, and you could tell the, the, the legitimacy of a lot of guys and you could not see through and see past, uh, those four in the ring. They were men, they were aggressive, physical, big athletes that, uh, was just a, a booker's dream. I thought the finish was good. It didn't kill anybody. It showed the heels cheated to win, uh, that, that, uh, you know, a woman was a, somebody to be reckoned with. I don't know if you remember or not. Do you remember the vignettes that I did with Scott with Rick Steiner when he's going to meet, uh, uh, Robin green. I do. Yeah. Where we see that one camera shot is our face. You know, uh, we're both are kind of mesmerized. We're both a little Jethro Bodinish. Uh, I love doing those. And, uh, Scott's uh, both those brick and Scott, both are very smart guys. They're better. I think they're, they're, they're the example I would give you. They're better individual talkers than they are tag team talkers. They just, uh, as evidence for what you said, Ricky became, or uh, Scotty became a hell of a promo guy's big pop pump. He found a character that he could identify with. Whereas as a tag guy being himself, he didn't, he didn't do it as well. He, nothing was better than big pop and pump with this talking. 
But when you put them to by themselves, I know doing that stuff with Rick with, the, with those vignettes, he was a natural. He got it. It's just a, neither one of them had great uh, uh, public speaking ex- experience or background. And so somebody should have helped him a little bit more and, and producing the interview. But then, of course, again, there were no writers. There's a blessing and a curse there. But if you're not going to have a writer, you need to, you, you got to have a point person. You got to have a producer, a booker, somebody on the booking committee, somebody that can stop the promo and say, let's say this. We can't say that, whatever. But I think everybody's kind of went unfettered, and the goal was to do it in one take. And sometimes you, that don't work. Very r- rarely does it work unless you're extraordinary, like Rick or somebody, Flair, whatever. Let's keep it moving. Let's talk about the next match. We've got Lex Luger and Brian Pillman. Uh, the United States Championship is on the line. I wish that if you're a, if you're a connoisseur of wrestling commentary, go back and just listen to the way Bob Cottle and Jim Ross put over Lex Luger on his march to the ring. JR is going to put over where he was recruited and who he was recruited by for college. And then talk about how he ultimately went to play professional football and was the youngest player to ever play professional football, where he played and how long. And Bob Cottle is going to talk about how there's no denying that this is the next caliber athlete that's going to carry professional wrestling into the 1990s. Just remarkable stuff, putting him over before the bell ever rang. And then unfortunately it did. Um, <laughs> but, but here's the deal as bad, as much as I want to make fun of this, this is one of Lex Luger's best matches he ever had three and a quarter stars, 16 minutes and 48 seconds. Uh, ultimately Luger gets the win using a hot shot where, you know, the backstory with Brian Pillman, he's going to drop him throat first on the top rope. That's going to be enough after all the surgeries that Pillman's had throughout his life, which we all know about, that's going to be the finish. The crowd's going to pop really, really big for it. I thought this was an excellent match and, and going into this, I thought, boy, Pillman's got his work cut out for him, but my goodness, it was good stuff. And you know, lots of cheers for both guys. Uh, there weren't, you know, th- this isn't your typical heel baby face situation, at least not in Philadelphia. I thought it was really, really well done. I did too. Uh, it shows you how great Brian Pillman could have been if he had not run afoul of, uh, bad personal decisions involving, uh, drugs and alcohol. Uh, and then of course being involved in the Humvee accident, uh, none of us know, uh, just how good he would have been. But I can I can tell you that I would bet everything I own that he would have been a one of the stars we talk about all the time in different terms than a drug and alcohol issue or a Humvee accident. So athletic uh, and fearless, he had, he had natural charisma, just oozing out of his pores, uh, and he overcame the small guy thing because he was an all-American nose guard in college nose tackle playing over the center on the defensive line at 225. Second team, AP All-American. The first team All-American was William Perry, who weighed 325. So uh, Brian was a phenomenal uh, overachiever. 32 or 33 throat operations when he was a little kid. That's why he got that raspy voice. I loved him, man. I really did. You know, when Kim Wood was a strength coach at the Cincinnati Bengals, one of the most respected men in the NFL, and uh, he was a big fan of wrestling and he, and Brian of course was grew up in Cincinnati and played for the Bengals. And then he went to play for the CFL and get trained to wrestle by the hearts in Calgary. Uh, but, uh, Kim Wood, while Brian was in Calgary would send me pictures of Brian and, uh, 
little notes. So he's doing this, he's doing that. Cause written text, you know, that didn't exist. Uh, so I, I, uh, I, I arranged to bring him in. So we, he did everything right. You know, I called Stu and he would like to hire him, bring him in and put him on TBS. We, we don't want to leave you high and dry. You know, so give us an outdate that suits you and we'll, that we'll work around it. And that's what we did. That's how you did business back then, honorably and upfront. And, uh, so I just love Brian. I really did, man. The one of the worst conversations I ever got one time, heartbreaking was, uh, Jack Lanza told me that, you know, said, JR, something's wrong with your boy here. I said, which, which, which one? And he said, Pillman, I don't, I'm, I'm worried about him. And I said, uh, well, what's why? And he said, well, right now he's in the locker room. I can see in the locker room on a pay phone. And he's curled up in a fetal position in a corner of the locker room sleeping. So of course me trying to be the, the, uh, you know, the defending uncle. Well, maybe he's tired. Well, that, you know, of course that's bullshit. And I said, okay. Uh, uh, you get, you're, you're with them tomorrow night, right? Jack, you're booked. I think in Portland or Seattle somewhere. And I said, said, I said, we're going to, I'm going to have you, I'm going to have a guy there tomorrow night. It's going to drug test him. So you just know that the fellas coming is I'm going to have him ask for you and you, and you get it done. So, okay. So there we, we're doing, we're, we, I do that the next night. Uh, I'm in Connecticut Eastern time. Uh, Jan's already in bed. I had fallen asleep in my chair famously. And the phone rings, home phone rings about midnight. No, what time was it? Yeah, right around midnight Eastern. And, uh, Brian was on the other line with that raspy voice screaming at me. I can't believe you did this to me. I can't believe that you're, you're having me drug tests. I can't believe that this is happening. You know, and I, I thought, I thought you were my friend and I thought you're my corner. Brian, I am, I don't want you to die. And if you, you, if you're going to sleep every night in a fetal position, in a goddamn locker room, something ain't right. Did you do that for the Bengals? You go to sleep in a fetal position in the locker room for the Bengals? No, you didn't. So I said, and look, if there's nothing in your system that's negative, that's a, that's going to hurt you. Then. So I, I, I just did it precautionarily and good for you. You're clean, but if there's not, there's something else there. We've got to, we got to know so we can nip this shit in the bud. We've got plans for you. But man, he was so mad at me. He hated me for about a day. Then he called me back to the office a day later. I'm sorry. I was all this and that. That's the relationship you had. But you got a Barry Switzer told me one time when you recruit and sign players, recruiting in college or, or whatever, uh, they're yours for life. And I've always looked at about Brian. I looked that way to a lesser degree about his kid, Brian Pillman Jr. He knows if I can ever help him in a productive way, uh, I'm here. But a lot of my, a lot of those guys are that way. I, I saw the same relationship with all the, all the wrestlers I, that I, I signed. That's, they're just, they're just, they're joined to your hip, whether you like it or not. Uh, and so there you are. So uh, Brian was a, such a wasted opportunity, unfortunately, just to the hand when he, when he, when they fused his ankle, when Brian Pillman's ankle was fused, his heart was broken because he knew physically it was essentially over. He could never be the athlete that he was before the f- ankle fusion and it killed him almost and maybe literally man what uh man this that's a hell of a sidebar and some heavy stuff and now we're going to talk about the silliness that is the goddamn thunderdome 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 so here's the concept you guys have in this company made cage matches 
famous, you know, I mean, you've had the, the steel mesh cages and Jim Crockett promotions that were just legendary. And of course, on the other channel, there's this big blue monstrosity. It's just not nearly the same, but here you guys are going to try something a little different. The cage doesn't just fly in from the ceiling like normal for the war games. There's no top on it and it's not even mesh. It's your version of the big blue cage, but it sort of leans in. There's a second set that leans in towards the top and makes it impossible for you to climb over and escape, but it's no longer on the ring apron. Now it goes all the way around. So you can actually run around the ring and still be inside the cage. And this thing is decorated with silly props and vines and I don't know, scary Halloween themed silliness. And you've or, got- or you can say Conrad is it was, a. Uh- it was decorated with Mickey Mouse horseshit. Yeah. I mean, how about tree branches, um, a Tarzan swinging rope, dragons facing outward, uh, cobwebs, a mailbox. I can't believe that this is real, but Meltzer wrote the cage looked awesome with tree branches, a Tarzan swinging rope inside dragons facing outward cobwebs and a mailbox on one side. The cage was so visually impressive. It took away from the concentration of the match, which Lord, uh, I thought this thing looked fucking goofy. I, I, I totally disagree. Bruno's the ref and we've mm-hmm. got two terminators. Now, what is a terminator? Well, I'm glad you asked. We've got someone in the, in the corner of the good guys and that's Ole Anderson. Yes. Ole Anderson is the good guy and Gary <laughs> Hart is in the corner of the bad guys. And these are your terminators. Now, what the fuck is a terminator? They give both of these guys a white towel. And the only way to have the match end is for one of these managers to throw in the towel, surrendering his team. And, uh, with that, we see the cage come down. And by the way, you've got four of the all time greats in here, Ric Flair and sting. They're together, but they're not opposed. They're on the same team and they're taking on Terry Funk and great Muda. Of course, they're both members of Gary Hart stable. It's silly to say the least, but as soon as the damn thing comes down, there's a little fireworks display and it catches some of the props on fire to the point that Tommy <laughs> young has to climb up there to try to put it out. He has a little help from a, a WCW staffer of the production team. And surely just to be funny, the great Muda climbs up and sprays some green mist on it, trying to put out the fire. And you guys mentioned that, but you guys are clearly reaching for something here, but it's, it's a weird, I, I think you even referred to it as Australian tag rules. Well, it started out that way. The Australian tag were one, one man on each team in the ring at, legally at one time, uh, which is something we need to work on in AEW right now. But nonetheless, and everybody does, somebody, somewhere along the way, people are going to start adhering to and respecting and utilizing the referees. It's real simple. Another story for another podcast, no doubt about that. But, yeah, it was uh, too gimmicky. Uh, I had no issues basically with the cage or the little the – little, uh, the, the, the unescapable cage and all that good stuff. And I understood too, why, uh, we went to the, the old WWE, like uh, blue cage, big blue. So people could climb up and screw around at the top. And, uh, it was just a lot easier, uh, to, 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 to manipulate and to maneuver. Well, in. well, here's the thing. They're not supposed to be climbing on the motherfuckers. You guys announced that it's an electrified cage. And yes, as soon sir. as you get that out of your fucking mouth, they're climbing up the motherfucker and nobody's getting electrocuted. Like it's just, yeah. and then you start to say, okay, well just the top is electrocuted until they start swinging on that shit. And it's like, how is this possible where the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing? 
to where you guys are saying it's an electrified cage. Somebody forgot to tell the goddamn wrestlers to pretend to be electrocuted. This is but, unbelievable. Because you don't have one person that is the go-to, the stopgap, the decision maker to spread the word. And we had a lot of really good guys in that booking committee. Guys are much smarter than I, but we didn't have one goddamn guy there because they were all active participants for the most part. I mean, Jim Barnett wasn't my God. Uh, but seriously, we just, there was no leadership. Conrad, I've mentioned so many times of the, the, the frustrations that came uh, just poured out of my body in the WCW years. I made great friends. I made good money. I love living in Atlanta. All that stuff. It's all true. It's all true. I was living my dream on a national television show, and I was the, the uh, one of the, the lead broadcaster on the on the WCW broadcast uh, for a good while, and all the things to be thankful for. I am, but God Almighty, the leadership. And what it was was that Jim Barnett convinced Ted Turner to buy Crockett and take over the deal. How great it's going to be, and have his own programming, first round programming every week, very cheap. And it was, quite frankly. When you look at furnishing somebody a live two hour show on Saturday and a one hour show on Friday night and a one hour show on Sunday night for X dollars, I don't know how much money we actually lost because they're going to buy that program from somewhere that, and, and there's no guarantee it's going to get the ratings that we got. Well, back a few minutes ago, we we're talking about power hour doing 5 million viewers, right? Did we say that 5 million viewers, 5.3? Well, it was class of the champions, but yeah, class, a class of champions. I'm sorry. Okay. That's a hell of a rating. What, what are we doing? What are, what are, what are shows doing now? Does, does SmackDown do 5 million viewers a week now on, on, on national television? No. Does Raw do it on USA? No. Are we doing it? Nope. It was a hell of a rating. So I don't know how bad it was. Now the issue about the same sponsors you mentioned earlier, that comes back on the sales team. That bullshit don't have nothing to do with the wrestling. If the numbers are there and the, and the households are delivered and documented along with the viewers, the number of viewers. It's up to the sales department to sell those numbers and package their ads or promotions or whatever, and give the sponsors a reason to buy. They were not doing that. So, uh, I don't know, man. I, I, I thought that the cage on paper looked like a good idea. We gimmicked it up, acquiesced to outsiders, giving feedback, a Tarzan rope. Are you shitting me? A Tarzan rope. What's that? How can we have a Jane rope? That would be a quality. Let's we got look. Tarzan rope. Let's mention this too. There's no blood in this match. You had been promoting on TV. Parental discretion is advised. And a bloodbath was almost fucking word for word promised in the promotion, but there's no blood in this match. Now we've talked earlier how TBS didn't want blood on TV, but maybe they don't have to, you know, uh, use those same rules on pay-per-view, but here the Pennsylvania state law would dictate there's no blood. Now there's no longer a commission here uh, at this point. However, there is a law on the books at this point that says any blading could result in the loss of licensing for the promotion. So as a result, there's no blood in this match where it's been very strongly suggested and almost expected because it's a goddamn cage match called the Thunderdome. Yeah. You just assume that that's going to be the case. And there are some silly spots in here that are kind of fun when funk is holding on to the top of the cage, not being electrocuted. Flair is chopping him while they're both at the top of the cage. And then eventually a little bit of common sense sets in Flair starts working on the knee. It becomes a more traditional match. Beautiful. The, the fans are really, really into it because they know when he starts working on the knee, he's getting ready to set up his finishing maneuver, the figure four. 
and yep. fans are, are in tune with that and popping for every little thing. Eventually there is the biggest shenanigan ever where Muda is going to get in a shoving match with Bruno San Martino and eventually Jimmy, not Jimmy, Gary Hart's towel comes flying in by accident. Uh, once, once Ole nails Gary Hart, uh, Gary's, Gary's towel goes flying. It lands on Bruno. Bruno sees the towel, raises Flair's hand in victory. From a historical standpoint, it's pretty significant. I assume this is the only time that Ric Flair and Terry Funk and Bruno San Martino were ever in the ring at the same time. But there's so much other shit going on. I don't know that anybody really put that together at the time. Meltzer, mm-hmm. believe it or not, gave this match four stars. I thought it was a jumbled mess. I would have much preferred just a regular tag match. But I guess the gimmicks at the time for the audience at the time in Philadelphia, they dug it. What'd you think? Four stars? Uh, maybe not four, but certainly close to it. And I wouldn't argue days four star deal. It was, I enjoy the match. Exclude, take away the, the, take away the things that the boys could not control that stupid structure that they were asked to perform in. Take it. Don't, don't discount that from your, your voting or your, your, your feelings in the match, the story that was told and the pairing of keeping sting and mooted together. Uh, I thought that I would, hey, here's the deal, man. I would watch Terry funk and Ric Flair wrestle every day. Every goddamn day, because I know this, they wouldn't spend all afternoon going over their spots. They wouldn't spend all afternoon, uh, impersonating their match and, 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 you know, and going boom, boom, boom. Then I'll, I'll, then I'll boom, 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 you, then you boom, boom. Then God, you guys are booming my ass off here. What are you doing? You're rehearsing a match that, uh, so they never did that. So that means this, every match would have been different. And the comedy nominator is always flares, always going to work on the leg. Because his finish is the figure four, always going to work on the leg. And people expected that because of his established finish that worked uh, more often. Well, it worked most, a lot of times. So, uh, anyway, I, I think that, uh, that I think the match is okay. I love the star power in it. You got Tom, you got Bruno in out of, out of position, but Bruno in that match. I love the fact you just pointed out about Bruno, Terry and Rick and bring the same first time ever. Uh, maybe the last time ever, right? Gotta be. Yeah. So, uh, and I thought the pop Bruno got in Philly when he nailed Muda, who took a phenomenal bump. He sold that, that punch. like he got hit by mule. It was, it was, uh, it was really emotional. And the other nice thing about that is that, you know, I think Bob Cottle and I were working there at ringside. Uh, and, uh, you know, obviously we were working ringside, but that beginning thing, though, the thing got caught on fire at the very beginning of the match. I thought, oh shit. This is going to be an omen. Uh, we're, we're in for, <laughs> we may be in for a long night, but I don't know if we got four stars, Conrad. I thought it was really well done. And Terry Funk's selling of his leg was so real, so believable, not eye rolling, phony pro wrestling horse shit. It was real to me how he sold his leg and Rick was attacking the leg, the, 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 the quads. Uh, it was just awesome. It was awesome. Different, you know, different variation, different, different application was just phenomenal. Then the spots they did were the team spots with, with, with sting and flair against Terry, who was in the figure four was, I thought it was pretty unique. I thought it was pretty good. So I, I enjoyed it. I really did. I enjoyed it because I'm a big fan of the participants in that match. Still am to this very day. 
I do want to mention the, um, the wrestling observer reader poll. They gave this show 48.1% thumbs up and 49.8% thumbs down. So just a razor thin margin between thumbs up, thumbs down, only 2.1% thumbs in the middle. It's rare that you see it this polarizing. Usually it's mostly up or mostly down uh-huh. and then middle sort of fills out the rest. In this case, it's about 50, 50. What say you, I mean, does the star power make up for the content? I thought it was, a uh, no worse than a middle, middle of the road show. I, I thought it was, I, I didn't watching it back was kind of nostalgic and fun for me. Seeing a lot of my friends and, and like I said, listen to Bob and, uh, work with Bob was always wonderful to hear. Uh, someday I'm really going to covet that. God bless him. I love him. Uh, good man. Gosh, oh, he you, made me a better man. You know what? But I, I, I said middle of uh, a middle middle of the road. Con. I didn't hate it. Was it the best pay-per-view that we did at WCW. Don't think so, but I don't think it was a train wreck whatsoever. I thought some of the, and some of the guys, here's what I know. You go back and look at the main event. Look at how hard these guys are working. Look at how athletic Muda is, how his timing is impeccable. Look at the presence of Ole and, and Gary Hart, uh, the presence, the feel that they brought to the, the equation. Ole wearing his belt and a pair of black suspenders, safety man. Uh, so I, I just, and then seeing Bruno, Bruno feeling that one big pop one more time out of physicality, doing what he made what was made famous and that is defending himself and his honor. Muda in, put his hands on the referee and the referee instead of admonishing him, gave him a right hand. I just loved all that stuff. So it was fun things. And, uh, and we, and again, the, the all-star cast, this is hard to, hard to overlook in my view. We should mention too, that we, uh, I guess I was so anxious to talk about the Thunderdome. I totally missed the road warriors and the skyscrapers right smack dab in the middle of this show. And what's interesting when you watch this back on the network, they did not clip out the road warrior theme song. Uh, it's still in there. Iron man is still in there. And these guys look like absolute fucking badasses coming to the ring and in their pre-match promo, their gimmick was once in a lifetime so far ahead of their time. And they're putting over that they're the greatest tag team in history on commentary. And that's really kind of hard to argue over. They are with the, the crowd and they don't just have the shoulder pads on when they come down, they've got shin guards like they were catching for the Braves, but they've been uh-huh. adorned with the spikes as well. And they're going to take on the skyscrapers, Dan Spivey and Sid vicious. Of course, Teddy long is with them. Teddy long is running around at ringside with this goofy fucking key, this oversized key, but Sid, you can see right here is going to be a very, very big star in this business. He has that intangible it. I think Hawk has it as well, not to disparage five or animal. They're definitely played their role, but Hawk and Sid really just jumped off the television screen. Of course, the road warriors get the win. No surprise, but it's by DQ. Uh, they go 11 minutes and 39 seconds. I dug the match for what it was, but the presentation of the road warriors and the poster they're on the poster for Halloween advocating on. <laughs> it just, it fits. Does it not? Yeah. Oh, it does. They face paint, you know, make a great, uh, you know, Hawk and animal make great, uh, uh, the paint will be good Halloween mask. I'm sure they they've made them and they're maybe out there now. Hell, I don't know. I, I I'm not going to, I have bought my mask kit for Halloween because it's tonight. And I guess I'll just punt. Uh, yeah, uh, I, they didn't lose much. And that was another issue. Uh, I, I was doing, we're doing our research here. 
the uh, the only match I can remember them losing by pinfall, they they got beat by the Midnight Express at a live event in Memphis that uh, did not make a lot of the people happy because it was a violation of what they wanted. What, what was it? What was called? But you know, same same deal. No accountability, no leadership, no buck stops where. Nobody wants to take ownership of things. And that's why I say you've got to be very judicious and have the right bond in chemistry in the booking committee because it's very easy to create uh, an unpeaceful, a, a peaceful, uneasy peaceful feeling to the, the roster when you are working with them and you're also booking the matches. I don't care who it is. Every booker, it's always that way. It's always been that way. Even when Cowboy owned Mid-South, he'd come out of retirement and, and draw big houses. And, and uh, you know, that's just, he, he was, he got over. And so it's just, that it was a strange deal. It's a strange feeling thing, how that works, uh, quite frankly. But you always, you're right about the star power. The charisma exuded from, from Hawk uh, more than anybody, more than Joe. And, I, and Joe's a friend. He's Joe's a talented guy. But Hawk had that it thing. And then, of course, uh, uh, Sid, the sky was really the limit. The, the limit was Sid. The, the, just, he had no bounds, how big, how good he could have been. Uh, but it just it didn't work out that way. But Sid's probably one of the biggest uh, unfortunate uh, developments. He, I thought he had the chance to be as good and draw as much money as anybody ever. But for various, various reasons, it just didn't happen. I do want to get your take on this too. I don't know how many folks this stuck out to when they watched it this week, but you've got eight matches on the card. Five are tag matches. Yeah. The only singles matches are Z-Man and Rotunda, uh, Rich and Cuban Assassin and Luger and Pillman. The rest, all tag matches. We've talked about before how Vince didn't necessarily love tag matches. It would increase your overhead, uh, you know, paying four guys in a match instead of two and, and plus the actual travel. No worry here though. JCP was built on tag matches and maybe that's never more evident than here where five of the eight are tag matches. Does that say more about Cornette being a booker than anything else? Or, or what would you, what would you attribute that to? I consider it to, uh, getting more talent work, getting more people on the card so that they, uh, can earn a few more dollars. That's what I attribute it to and trying to make, bring peace in the Valley. I've been talking about this thing now where if you're a wrestler and an active performer and you're in the, your decision-making a role, i.e. the booking committee, sometimes you got to go way above and beyond to make as many people as you can happy. So you can ease their apprehensions for at least for one big show. That show is grossly overbooked. You never want that many tag team matches on a show. Uh, you don't want, you don't want that many of anything. You don't want that many cage matches or tag matches or, or, Texas death matches or anything. Give me a variety of things. And, but it's all got to be based on sound fundamental pro wrestling from bell to bell, different presentations, but the same basic product of solidness and, and cohesion and logic. But, uh, we were, all that was Conrad was just trying to get as many guys, uh, uh, uh on the payroll as we could. And even if we said to herd, we're not going to use the road warriors in the show, for example, no, that was never said by the way. Uh, he would, he, he would, he would, he would push back on that concept because we're paying the road warriors so much money. God damn it. They got to work. They got to get them. We got to get our money's worth out of these guys. So, uh, that's kind of how that was. It's just, it was a matter of trying to get everybody work, but obviously Cornette was a very, uh, 
a crucial member of tag team development in pro wrestling in this country in the, in the, uh, you know, in a for several decades. So, uh, and a lot of our guys, Sullivan was, had been involved in tag teams and factions. So, uh, and, and nobody had a, a pushback on it. We just, we broke all of our own rest pro wrestling rules to adhere to the upper management's lack of intellect and, and they're justifying, well, put this guy on the card. Did we need to have, uh, did we need to have Tommy rich and, uh, the Cuban assassin on that show in Philly? Now in some markets, it probably was a good play. And both of them are, I, hey, both those guys are solid as hell. If they're, if both David Sierra and, uh, Tommy rich are young right now. And, and they've been making themselves a lot of money because they're, they're excellent in-ring performers and can work with anybody. You can't say that about a lot of wrestlers nowadays. They can work with anybody. That's an ultimate compliment. So, uh, I, I, I think the show was politically booked, trying to adhere to the, the desires of Turner home entertainment and the upper TVS management who had, who got now got to go in the locker room, as I said earlier, just, uh, it was, it was ill-conceived. Uh, you're right to Connor. That's a good point though, with the tag matches too damn many of them. How do you make them all different? You don't. And so some of them get shit on, i.e. uh, uh, we talked about that, you know, even Cornette couldn't get a great match out of the dynamic dudes. Uh, so we too much, this didn't work. Not, we didn't use our brain, man. We we're just being influenced to do what we were told to do and to try to make the corporation happy. Corporate wrestling is not a friend of the fans or the talent. I can promise you. Well, not too much longer after this, we get one of the greatest matches of all time. And we're going to cover it in just two weeks. It's clash of the champions, New York knockout. It's clash nine, man. What a great match. We're going to revisit that one on November 14th, but I know what you're thinking. Well, what's next week, boy, we're going to set the internet ablaze next week. It's hashtag ask Jr. anything. Mm-hmm. And given that we've had a, a red ass Jr. the last few weeks, I'm looking forward to this hashtag ask Jr. anything, follow us on Twitter. If you haven't already, we're going to have a post up by the time this show loads, it'll be pinned to the top where you can ask your questions. And the way to do this is just follow us on Twitter. It's at Jr. grilling. That's at Jr. grilling. And then next Thursday, well, get your popcorn ready, boys and girls, Jim's yeah. coming and he's bringing hell with him. You're damn right. And, uh, you know, Conrad, I'm anxious to see that if any of those, uh, folks had three or four followers, I had a response to, to a gent the other day. I said, you know, I, he just ripped my ass. I looked at his deal and he had five followers and I'm thinking, well, here I, I'll, so I said something to the effect that, uh, I hate to lose you and your five followers, but you're blocked. And, uh, so it'll be interesting to see if anybody else of that ilk and that mindset sends us some questions. There's no off limits folks. I'm serious. Let's keep it clean. We ain't got to, you know, use over overly foul language, uh, and keep in good taste if we can, but there's nothing, te- t- there's no theme or topic off limits. So, uh, keep that in mind and I ain't going to bullshit you, you know, you can, and you can handle the truth. No doubt about it. Right, folks, speaking of my friend, Tony Schiavone, I'm so happy that Tony is getting the, the recognition and the acknowledgement of how good he was then and how much better he is now in my view as a broadcaster, Tony adding to our, our team is making all of us better. And I hope that an Excalibur has got an unlimited future. Very, very smart guy. 
really a student of the game. And our goal, Tony and I talked about this, you know, it, we want to make him the best announcer in the business at some point in time. And maybe we can do that. He can get that done with our help. That's what we plan on doing, trying to play it forward for everybody that we come in contact with. Somebody wrote me a question the other day. They said about, uh, do you get embarrassed about uh, uh, announcing a match with somebody? Maybe it was Jimmy Havoc or somebody. I said, no. Are you stupid? I've done matches with every kind of character there is from the Adrian Streets to the Andre the Giants. No, man. And I'm really accustomed to running the plays that the coach calls. You so know, no, it, it doesn't bother me, man. It doesn't it, bother me at all. It's weird to me that all of a sudden people forget that you had to call May Young giving birth to a hand and yeah. uh, Katie Vick getting the D slung on her by Triple H and a mask and you know hot lesbian action was there is so many low points in the history of professional wrestling where guys were just getting out there creatively and for better or worse there were a lot of misses but then we're gonna take issue with with a new unique character like Jimmy Havoc or orange Cassidy. Yeah. They may be controversial. Yeah. They may stir up a little bit of talk, but goddamn, we're going to act like that's the worst thing Jim's had to call in his career. He had his ass shoved up Vince McMahon's head. What the fuck are we talking about? <laughs> yeah. No kidding. Uh, it's just, it's an interesting society we live in. I'm trying to be more patient, more tolerant, but uh, I kind of feel I'm a little scared sometimes about where the future of our country is going. If, if, if some of these social media things I get or any indication of what people think. And the other thing is that somebody said this week said, well, you know, Jr., you're going to be screwed when McMahon buys out the, a when the AEW goes out of business and McMahon buys all the contracts or whatever this is, something along with something to that effect. Well, let me tell you something. Uh, I, you can do a Google search of net worth, uh, put shot con on your little screen and it's going to pop up $8.2 billion. He owns AEW. His net worth is $8.2 billion. That's in Conrad Thompson land. Man ain't done too bad. He's worth, I think 2.3 or $2.5 billion. So if you do basic math, kids, uh, Mr. Khan is not going to run out of money. We're not going to give him any reason to think about pulling the plug. It's, he loves what we do and, and we're going to build a brand here. So it, but we can't do it in four weeks. You got to fix it. You got to fix that. This is also exhausting. Like, dude, you know what? I never cared what rating the Sopranos got or how much money the directors made or uh, just fucking watch what you like. And we hope you like what we did this week on the show. And if you don't go fuck yourself with bluechew.com and use promo code JR. They didn't advertise this week, but there's your free plug. Let's just enjoy wrestling. Listen, yeah. there's enough people outside of this wrestling bubble who think that what we love so much is stupid. The last thing we need to do is fuck a, fuck each other up on these things too. Come on. Let's all come together as wrestling fans. Watch what you like. If you don't like something on the show, it's not for you. Fast forward on the DVR. The next segment will have something for you. And we've got something for everybody next week, right here on grill and Jr. It's hashtag ask Jr. Anything. Follow us on Twitter right now at Jr. Grilling. Ask your questions and tune in next Thursday. Don't forget to leave us a five-star review. If you think we earned it, tell a friend and hit that subscribe button. It's free. We look forward to visiting with you next Thursday and every Thursday right here on Grilling Jr. with the voice of wrestling, Jim Ross. Hey everybody, this is Dan Bespris, host of Fantasy NBA Today, a daily fantasy basketball podcast. We cover every box score from every game 
every day. Plus bonus shows on buy low opportunities, players to stash, schedule analysis, and really anything you could need to smash your league into deliciously tiny pieces. Catch the Fantasy NBA Today podcast, part of the Believe Network, on YouTube or wherever you listen.